0: The following discussions are a further look into Director Thomas W. Arlington and the tumultuous events of the final year of the Grant administration. This won't be an easy road to walk down, but I have faith that we will be stronger for following it to its conclusion. Through the Wind Door
1: dear listeners and welcome to another episode of through the window with your friends greg and toby toby coming back after a while freshly married and Mm. aren't we all aren't we all very happy that everything went off i i I think mostly without a hitch is what i heard from you yeah i would say say...
0: without a hitch but considering the idea is to get hitched it's a weird (laughs) phrase to invoke so like there was there was one central hitch and that was exactly what you want
1: as long as that hitch went off and (laughs) that's Mm. the only hitch you want to go off yep and that also means that for those of you that are interested in the inner lives of myself and toby that when you get to the end of this particular sequence of episodes there's going to be some brilliant content in the outtakes where we get to catch up with sarah and learn a little bit more about toby's better half which absolutely it, better it, half. which is honestly like if toby is already like really great then obviously sarah just ends up having it to be even better doesn't she
0: so oh yeah like, i mean like sarah is absolutely like why didn't we start the podcast with her Why?
1: (laughs) (laughs) We were joking about the possibility of doing a zoology or cryptozoology-focused episode in the future. I don't know if this will actually happen, but who knows? If we can get Sarah interested in actually reading the books, then maybe we can intrigue her with some of the interesting routes that we can go down, discussing some of the various animals that Mm. incorporate the world of New Century. So.
0: I think that there's a, I, I've talked to Sarah about this a few times, actually, that there's something uh, fascinating about like looking at animals in uh, media, and whether they be fictional or just sort of embellished versions of real-life animals, and seeing how like the little nuances of animals are actually conveyed. Something I really like about the MonsterVerse movies, and something that Sarah and I have had numerous conversations about with her leading them is about how you really do actually see real like animal behavior and interiority in the way that a lot of the kaiju move and act
1: oh god and... okay um i'll obviously clear this with her first uh-huh. but i i suddenly realized we, we were joking about the quagga earlier uh-huh. Really see if you can get her to read t- or listen to Tiger's Eye. Because, as someone that knows a lot about marine biology, I want to hear Sarah's take on The Widow Beneath the Waves
0: yeah yeah i would and that would definitely be one that i would bring up but Mm -hmm. uh yeah genuinely like in in the same way that uh having jesse on with our last interview was very much about getting like someone who has a particular angle of analysis that they bring to the table Mm -hmm. i think Mm -hmm. that uh, even if it's somewhat without context i will definitely like i've numerous times thought about like selecting a range of animals and beasts and whatnot and thinking about what like how the animals come to life in New Century is hmm. a conversation master like rife with potential.
1: Absolutely. Well, we begin on an overall positive note. In point of fact, we began our pre-podcast socialization with Sarah, not just to catch up on the whole wedding, but because we're about to get into some Difficult conversations as we are moving from part two into part three of Arlington Um, Mm -hmm. Over the next few episodes we are going to be covering chapters 17 through 19 And as the book titles them We had already been talking about part two being referred to as the search begins And and chapter 17 works
0: well because it's the search for not only the a new vice president candidate, but also for the Manticle.
1: Yeah, the Mantic exactly. But something that happens since I decided to cover 17 through 19 is that chapter 17 is part of part two, the search begins, and as we move into chapter 18, that is the beginning of part three, which is referred to in the book as the point of no return. I would normally shy away from discussing a range of episodes that cross over from one part to another because there's a reason why these parts exist. They're part of a mm. narrative arc. But mm. as I discussed with Toby beforehand, I think that chapters 17 through 19 work thematically in and of themselves mm. because, and everyone who... Is listening to this now should be aware of it. You should have read or listened to chapter seventeen through nineteen. Uh, is that it begins with Annie's own dark descent, which is mirrored by the descent of Washington D.C. itself, as it deals with the trial and the ensuing riot, and then the way the Wendigo attack plays into all of that. Honestly, it's just as well the chapters were picked the way they were. Not only did the Division work fine with the remaining chapters, but if we tried to cover part two all in one sitting, we would have not only been trying to cover five chapters at once, each with their own hefty weight that we would have needed more than one Skype session to complete as a result, just take a look at our episodes on Tiger's Eye if you're curious. But on top of that, we would have ended an episode on a depressing note, which I never like doing. Another good thing about doing chapters 17 through 19 is that it also gives us two opportunities to see our new antagonist, Seth, on Mm -hmm. two separate occasions, allowing us to focus a bunch of conversation about this mysterious character into one Skype session, basically. Mm -hmm. I, I think our next two recording sessions after this will end up similarly three chapters each as opposed to the four chapters that we had been doing. Mm. So in a way, we are creating our own relevant theme where these final three Skype sessions cover 17 through 19, The Descent, 20 through 22, Rally, and then the final three chapters, Denouement.
0: Mm. I think that it it makes sense to consider these three as a trio because even though they overlap and you're looking at things from two different parts, sometimes it's good to consider that, like sometimes people engage with stories, not necessarily in the cleanest way that the author or like directors or the storytellers lay out for them. Sometimes people do just sort of go, oh, like, uh, you know, it's the end of the chapter, I need to hear what happens next. So you end up reading a couple and then you're in the middle of something. So it's good to sometimes like stir things up a bit, consider Mm -hmm. these chapters not just as sort of clean breaks between them, but to kind of have our, the way we are working our way through these books is kind of organically reflecting the experience of someone who is reading these over a period and like different reading sessions you'll cover different amounts so I always like that feeling that we can create through our own decisions of as we go through doing our what I would say grommet stacking the uh, (laughs) railway track as we go Mm -hmm. it's good to kind of have that feeling because then you know okay this is always feeling like the organic reading experience
1: that is sorry Mm. didn't mean to step on you but that is honestly you know as much as we are reviewing and deconstructing Mm. through the window is a creative process in and of itself therefore Mm. the way that we choose to craft it is a part of our artistry you know? Exactly.
0: It's a, it's a statement of the stories and the idea of what, it's something I always hold to is that, uh, like every piece of art or media is kind of bringing half of the stuff to it. And then the other half is what the audience brings to it. And so the way that we sort of break these stories down in our own, like relaying, or just sort of engagement with it is a sort of creative act in and of itself. But to go back to the specific points you were talking about, about how these chapters do fit together thematically, not just practically for our purposes here today. If the story of Arlington so far has been about a government being dealt a bad hand and making a plan in response to try and mitigate damage or regain some kind of stability or control with Annie's handful of chapters showing a similar progression of shit this awful thing just happened, here's what I'm going to do about it, as she tracks down the manticore. This segment of the story is where we see the best laid plans and intentions get swept aside by factors outside of their control, and their own lack of control is thrown into sharp relief. Or, as we have brought up a couple of times in this series of Arlington shows, it's a case of theory and practice. Yeah, I think it's appropriate that we examine it also in a short collection of three chapters because it also demonstrates how so suddenly everything can fall apart. If we've taken these chapters up till now to sort of breathe and take stock of what the situation is, Mm -hmm. now the situation has devolved to a state where we don't necessarily have time to take stock, so we have to pin things down and focus on the smaller scale of each story beat as it unfolds because there's too much to unpack as we go on
1: i don't remember if we've ever discussed the dragon age games either on the podcast Mm. or private
0: private discussion yeah. yeah
1: but the way what you just related makes me think a little bit about um, and I just actually started replaying this recently. The Dragon Age 2 installment in that particular arc, where mm. you get to play a heroic character, as so often happens in your role playing games. But the overall the experience of the main character who is always named Hawk, no matter what class you pick or what mm. gender you choose, one of the experiences of that game is that it gives you many opportunities to do things for people to be as selfless or as selfish as you want to be
0: jesus the wendigos are in full force let me uh hold that thought i'm just going to get that window nice and closed
1: One of these days, I'm going to find out what's going on, that you have so many motorcycles in the area, that it's part of an ongoing joke that any time a motorcycle goes by, it's Wendigo's. But we're deep into actual conversation now, so I will save that query for a later time.
2: Sorry about
0: that. Uh, I can't do anything about the number of Wendigos, but uh, I did manage to maneuver to get access to the windows to close them in amongst (laughs) the various junglery we have in the flat at the moment.
1: Oh, they always want to be the peanut gallery. Mm. Yeah, as I was about to say, the... Dragon Age, uh, hawk. Well, okay, so even as you're trying to prevent people from being hurt or various calamities from happening in the city because as a person of ability and privilege to a certain extent and as someone that people often look to in order to resolve problems because you turn to this person that is well known and therefore you're trying to like convince people are trying to convince you the player character that they have the best idea to either protect the city or to resolve an issue. But over and over again in the game, there are simply things that are beyond your control. And Mm. a lot of things turn out badly regardless of how hard you try to stop it because the experience that you end up happening is just because you have a great deal of agency to affect change. It doesn't alter the fact that there are also people out there that also have a similar level of agency that can do things when you're not around to stop them or that Mm. you simply can't convince them to do otherwise. Regardless, things boil over Mm. and all you can do is deal with the fallout. That makes me think a lot about what's going on Mm. in this book which you know is sort of part and parcel connected with the things that are going on in the world mm. it's just that usually a video game is all about empowerment so mm. dragon age 2 kind of you have to sit with the idea that you can't fix everything which mm. is unusual for a video game
0: yeah it's the it's the feeling that i Because of how Dragon Age 2 and the sort of Bioware, Mass Effect style RPG, where you have choices, but because you're playing somewhat scripted, like, well, very scripted and even voiced characters, it means that there's a certain number of paths, but it's not as open-ended as, say, a tabletop game or even other video game RPGs where like it's a series of text lines in a drop down menu and you don't have to voice them but because there's voice work and animation and like camera angles and a lot of extra steps involved it means that to a certain extent while it still feels like a role-playing game where you have agency Mm -hmm. there is only so much control you have and it feels like that practical quality of the games creates a thematic statement yes. even if it's not intentional or not it's that there is going to be free will you will have some agency you always will but you will be drawn towards an impulse to certain like paths even if like they are different paths that that is a preset factor and then there's also just everything else going on and yeah Free will can be a bitch like that sometimes. So that is something that we're dealing with in these situations like this, where the problem isn't necessarily a natural calamity, even though it feels like that in New Century, the problem is of one of a human nature. And Mm -hmm. when you're dealing with pieces on the board that each one represents human agents, that can be very difficult to navigate because all of those pieces are also trying to solve the puzzle at the same time. But the final way that the jigsaw puzzle will all come together, everyone has a different vision in mind for what it's meant to be. Mm -hmm. It's like building a Lego set, but the Lego pieces have their own idea. It's the Lego (laughs) movie. Where yeah. all the master builders are like, I want uh, I want it to be all in black, uh, or
1: sometimes very, very, very dark grey. Darkness, no parents. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah, it I got away people... from
0: me a little bit. I swear, I had like half a dozen metaphors and analogies all sort of sprinkled in and sticking out like vestigial limbs.
1: There are people that don't like. Dragon Age 2 specifically because of the... Well, Dragon Age has always sort of marketed itself a little bit as quote-unquote dark fantasy, but Dragon Age 2 specifically does something that the other games tends not to, and there are people that dislike it because of this thematic idea of, like, you can't fix everything. I like the game more because of that. I don't have a problem Mm -hmm. with sitting in a place of disempowerment. Mm -hmm um it feels a little bit more true to life while still giving me the agency to affect mm. the relationships i can and to at least save mm. some people even if i can't prevent these disasters from playing out entirely mm. and i guess you could say that could also be why even though what's coming is difficult i still mm. like arlington as a book it feels weird to say it but i like question mark the Mm. places that it takes me uh Mm. even if it's painful
0: it's it's the idea of like appreciating the effects that you know that bitter medicine will have even if the flavor
1: is bitter yeah well we're going to start talking about one of those bitter flavors now because we're beginning with chapter 17 and it's hard to swallow Because it takes us to a place that knocks the wind out of the reader, especially those like us that have been invested in Carl and Annie since Secret Rooms. We see now why Carl was brought back, because we wouldn't wouldn't feel that it was as hard a loss if Annie's Lancer was someone we didn't know, given that he's really present for only two chapters in this book. And to be honest, Chapter 17 also makes us fear for Annie's life as well. Alex has talked about in the past that the only way that he can write his protagonists into danger is if it actually feels like they could die. And that is written into every iota of Annie's confrontation with Seth. Good night,
0: foul-mouthed prince, and flights of profanities sing thee to thy rest. <laughs> I promised myself I wouldn't cry. <sighs> in all seriousness, it is deeply saddening. And in the time since, I, you, you, Carl, like and sort of fervent appreciation for him, has to a certain degree become an in-joke among Mm -hmm. us of just like basically wanting to cram Carl in anywhere he can conceivably show up. Part of you wonders like, okay, are we over-exaggerating like the effect he has on us or our attachment to him? And going back to these early books of New Century, the ones that he is actually present in, it does solidify why he, is a favorite of mine and perhaps a fan favorite in general, because he doesn't just make a fun impression by swearing up a storm and providing a gruff sense of humor. He's also a really valuable support for the brief time that we know him. Yes, he saves Abigail and James's lives at the end of Secret Rooms, and he has Annie's back here, even if the mission goes poorly. But more than that, he's also a surprisingly reassuring conversation partner. In chapter 17, before the encounter at the cave, we are shown how he listens to Annie and asks her questions, probing questions about why she's doing this, making sure that she knows that no one could fault her for what happened, or would fault her for falling back now. It's important to Carl, I think, that she knows this, in the definitive edition of Secret Rooms, an extra scene was added near the end of Abby having a conversation with him and Virgil. I still remember the whole bit of him asking for the world's smallest violin. (laughs)
2: Carl,
0: Carl doesn't voice empty niceties, but he isn't an asshole. Well, he's not too much of one anyway. And he will call you on your bullshit sometimes that's in a mocking way that has the positive effect of preventing characters from getting too bogged down feeling sorry for themselves and helps them to like write themselves like with abby but sometimes he's not being direct in order to cut at you he's doing it to try and cut away the bullshit that people heap onto themselves annie should not blame herself and She is going above and beyond her call of duty here, and that's not necessarily a good thing, because it might get her killed, and Carl's concerns put that into the limelight. Carl is the only one around who can call her out on this, and he tries to, and even after that, when she resolves to still keep going and even gives him an out, she has given reasonable uh well reasons for why the most sensible thing would be for him to take the safe option out and he knows he has done everything he has been a an exceptional partner up to this point and even with all of that his response is essentially fuck that (laughs) Carl has people's backs even if he can be a jackass and Just as we feel we are going to love him and appreciate his company and presence, his life slips through our fingers and the way that his death is confirmed emphasizes that because we want to heal him, but we're just told he's already dead. This connection wasn't lost in a big definitive moment. We saw it and we were fearing it, but the actual moment where it happened it occurred without us realizing it when we weren't looking. And that hurts Annie. And it certainly hurts us too.
1: I don't... I don't know when it came about that Alex realized that Carl was a bit of a breakout character from Secret Rooms. Because, as you mentioned, he wrote some extra scenes with mm. Carl that ended up coming into the definitive edition. I don't necessarily know if those scenes were going to make it specifically into Steamheart, but the point is, is that that final scene between him and Abigail is is a specifically a, a more complete denouement to her arc in that Mm. book Mm. but it it provides needed extra characterization of carl Mm
2: -hmm. that
1: basically helps show a little bit about his role in the story Mm. which you eloquently talked about for several minutes there in terms (laughs) of it's something it's something that he ended up doing for Abigail. He is an important voice during these moments with Annie. Mm. It makes me wonder more about what it was like with him and Virgil and the now other two dead road agents that were supposedly all gathered together prior to the incident on Rutledge Road. Because it doesn't necessarily seem like he's. Even though we talk about him being a lancer, and a lot of the times lancers are like, they think that they would be the leader themselves, that they have a better idea of how Mm. to do something.
0: They're the Raphael to the Leonardo.
1: Exactly. There's a little bit of that dynamic going on all the way back in secret rooms between Abigail and Annie, obviously. Oh, shit, yeah. Wow. (laughs) What I've been trying to say here, and apparently failed to, during the original conversation, is that Carl never necessarily comes off like things would be better if he was the leader. When I originally voiced this thought, Toby pointed out to me that in Secret Rooms, Carl does try to assert that he is the leader during the argument with Annie. And to be honest, I had forgotten this moment. It was short and overshadowed by the fact that at the time, I was much more interested in the content of Annie's tactic. We never find out if Carl was, in fact, originally the leader of that group, or if he was just bulldozing Virgil in a crisis. Back when I was first thinking about the end of Carl's story and how he ended up, my initial thought was that he was actually happier not making the hard decisions, even if he didn't hold back voicing his opinion. But the events of Chapter 17 could be read one of two ways. Either he thought he knew better and acted like a hot-headed lancer would when he decided to engage with the Wendigo, or he feared losing someone important and acted on impulse out of loyalty. No you don't, Megatron! Out of the way, hot rod! Maybe those two ideas aren't in opposition, either. After all, the best lancers do actually care for the hero even if they think the hero is wrong. In a story about tragedy, maybe this was just Carl's Hamartia coming to pass. In this case, Carl is providing a little bit of that role, as we have talked about before, to Annie, but it has a different flavor to it in that Carl isn't afraid to challenge Annie, particularly when... She, in some way, saved his life Mm. by giving him the opportunity to, you know, actually have a life, so to speak, instead of
2: Mm.
1: shooting him dead where he was, which she showed that she was very capable of doing, basically. Mm. That's a weird sort of loyalty to engender, but it, it definitely happened, and that's why he cares enough to try and do the same for Annie, both by A, trying to talk her out of her course, and then B, Mm. coming back to support her, even after Mm. she sends him off.
0: I had never considered the fact that this is another reason why there is a loyalty, because if he had come across another cartographer, Mm. there's no guarantee that they would have given him the same chance that Annie gave him and Virgil. That is something. And are you bringing up how lancers often have this feeling of, like, they are frustrated with the hero, protagonist, leader Mm -hmm. archetype Mm -hmm. because they have this deep-seated belief that they could do better if they Mm. were in those shoes. Carl, when he butts heads with or, like, sort of criticizes or, like, calls you out on stuff, it's not with some sort of hidden idea of thinking that he would do better if he was calling the shots it's there's not, no
1: rivalry there no there's no it's... rivalry
0: he doesn't need to gain anything in order to be fulfilled we sort of see from the idea that he likes being pampered that he is someone who knows what he likes and like when he is able to have it he's content with that and so what that makes you conclude is that if he's butting heads with you it's not because of some rivalry or some idea that like i should be the shonen protagonist or something like that (laughs) it's the it's the idea that he's doing it because it's important that it's voiced and he doesn't like he's not necessarily a character who will be thinking about all of this in a huge amount of detail he is definitely like smarter and like more emotionally intelligent than you might believe in in a first impression but he's he's such a voice that you're glad to have he he there's an intuitiveness to his presence which i think helps you to it provides clarity And so that's why his loss hits hard, because you've lost that extra perspective in the room, that clarity, and you miss it immediately.
1: Carl, by his very nature, is a support character. Mm. And now we have lost his support, and that makes Mm. things feel darker. Exactly. Um, Honestly, I I remember this scene... From Arlington, but it was Mm. only going back and rereading it that I realized just how much Carl and Annie there was in this chapter. Mm. And it's almost important for it to be there because there are going to be people out there to whom Arlington might be their first new century book. They're not Mm. going to have the context of secret rooms to understand Mm. Carl as a person. Mm. And so... He really needs to sell why it is that he's here because obviously, in the previous chapter, it seems like Annie picked him just because he was there,
2: Mm-mm. but
1: we now understand that there might have been subconscious motivations, even for her, about why she picked him over other people. She goes into some detail in her quote unquote journal entries about. Mm the ostensible reasons why Mm. she picked Carl to come with her. But Carl provides us with the real reason just by interacting with her in this chapter. Mm. And while their interactions in that early chapter were fun and very in keeping with Lancer tropes, here in chapter 17, we need to see the depth of Carl, his actual mm-hmm. interest in the captain, his desire mm-hmm. to understand her, which allows us to see his loyalty and actions on her behalf. Mm-hmm. We've, He's... we've talked about this, we believe in his sacrifice, in his mm-hmm. capacity for good, because their mm-hmm. shared experience bears it out and gives it weight.
0: Exactly. I genuinely have nothing to add, because that uh... Sums it up perfectly. And if it hasn't been obvious from just how much we've talked about Carl like in the entire like episode listing of Through the Window and even before it, Carl's legacy is secure. He has a presence, I think, with us well beyond this book. And I think we shall leave it there.
1: <laughs> uh yeah, we're gonna leave it there because obviously we don't wanna spoil anything. Even though this would seem to be the end of Carl's story, much like a certain character in The West Wing, drop a penny in the jar, death is not always the end.
2: So Mm.
1: now it's time to talk about the horrible monster in the room. Seth. Mm. Unlike the Wendigo, or at least unlike the Wendigo scene to be presented, Seth is no mere animal. He is a predator in multiple senses of that word. And that's what makes him frightening. He is sapient will mixed with beast-like ferocity, psychological cunning, and superhuman resilience. One of the things that we covered in one of the News of the Century is that Alex once thought about writing a Dracula-type story.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And as I said at the time, I'm not sure how he'd do better than he did with Seth. Annie's encounter helps us to understand his dangerousness and his intensity. But as we also get to see as a part of chapter 17 and 19, that he has aspects that are feline as a contrast Mm -hmm. to those he calls family, who we see more akin to canines, a.k.a. werewolves.
0: My God, he has cat-like reflexes.
1: (laughs) Well, (laughs) uh, we joke, but I mean, like, we see with Annie and with the farmer and his wife, he likes Mm. to play with his food. Mm. First in testing Annie's resolve to see if she will willingly allow him to turn her and then tormenting the farmer and his wife before turning them he doesn't even present that as an option to them he was always planning on doing that it's like almost felt like almost a kind of test and experiment Mm. to see this person seems a little bit different from those i've experienced before what would happen if i offered them a choice Mm. would they take it, you know? And it just feels difficult and disgusting. Mm. We, we don't necessarily feel that he is merely prejudiced and values mm. Wendigo life over human life, like Magneto with mutants. Much like Dracula himself, it feels like the offer to turn others is to make them into pets. He is not a pet. Yeah, okay, slow your roll there, Seth. First of all, I was talking about the Wendigo, not Braoth, who remains a bit of a cipher at this point. And second of all, you can talk all you want about what you say you believe, but your actions also speak louder than words, and your actions have plenty to say. The Dracula metaphor in particular comes to mind because of the vampire women in Bram Stoker's original book. They had likely been created by the Count and wanted to feed on Jonathan Harker, but Dracula pulled rank over them, saying that Harker belonged to him. It didn't matter in that case that they were also vampires, because he was still the one with the most power. And on top of that, it's also entirely possible that because he created them, he could naturally keep them in his thrall. That's the vibe that Seth gives off in regards to the Wendigo. Maybe he he thinks, he he certainly frames it as these creatures, the Manticore included, are my family, Mm. but just in my personal impression, especially from these early chapters, it doesn't really feel like he considers them Family because he uses words like Instruct mm. You know he doesn't doesn't Necessarily feel that he's Treating the wendigo Like equals
0: They seem to In the way he discusses Them lack a will And it is his will That is sort of Guiding and leading them mm-hmm. Because he yeah. is instructing Them and that's what like Makes it We don't really know enough about Seth and what his whole deal is at this point. I mean, to to be be perfectly honest,
1: we don't even know enough about the Wendigo, but that's that's Mm. how it feels Uh, from the
0: frame. mm. Yeah, exactly. But from this, it feels like there is, as much as he says they are a family, there is an imbalance in the sense that he is Mm. the one who throws around the most weight and all of the Wendigos are basically adding their weight to the momentum that he wants to like guide them along.
1: Yeah. There are a lot of patriarchs out there that would say, oh yes, your family and I'm Mm. the one taking care of you, but Mm. he's still the one at the top of the heap.
0: Yeah. He's a curious case because he is talking about this being liberating Because Mm. it's about you just sort of, like, essentially just taking off your human clothes and just, like, and I mean that not just, like, in a sort of blunt description, but actually, like, the specifically... The clothes you put on every day in order to be a person to
1: Mm-mm. live
0: in a society, as you might say. But
1: oh god, uh, no, I don't. He, I'm sorry, I don't want to think about Seth as fucking no, Joker.
0: No. He is someone who is kind of inviting you to just let go of all of the stuff that, like I said earlier, that you heap upon yourself, mm. and that is something that for a while and he does find quite a freeing concept but there is the hint that it is not necessarily as plain as that because he is still instructing them so Mm -hmm. he is an intriguing character from an early stage because we get this feeling that as much as he may be one of the most purely pure in the way he has driven characters in Arlington so far there is a focus to him he has this primal quality to him but that does not mean that he is not prone to the same biases that we associate with being human if he even if he is not on the label being human
1: so something you wrote earlier mm. that I, I had thoughts about. Yes. Um, when we were talking about specifically the Dracula metaphor, mm. you brought up the idea Dracula sort of presents himself a little bit as being aristocratic mm. and that you weren't sure that there were parallels. accounts, after all. Yeah, right? yeah, exactly, yes. You weren't sure that there were parallels between Dracula and the way he treats humanity and the mm. way Seth treats humanity because... He he is completely setting himself apart from, as you say, the society that would place the nobility over humans. But there might be something more primal than, the, mm. than that going on because he definitely sees himself as apparently better than humans.
0: And mm. honestly,
1: that's a very aristocratic vibe, one would say. That is that
0: very it, true.
1: The nobility views the commoners as chattel that he can Mm. do with as he wishes
0: his role in the story so far we haven't necessarily had a chance to hear seth like voice exactly what his intentions are and exactly Mm. the reasons behind them but so far it seems clear this is the person instructing the wendigos and it is the wendigos that have been responsible for the Downfall of human civilization, which means that he seems positioned to essentially be the dismantler of h- human infrastructure.
1: Well, th- that if, if we naturally have to ask ourselves, is that a motivating factor? Given that he is that the goal sent...
0: or a side effect of what he wants to do? Like,
1: yeah, well, but but here's the thing: is that it isn't just that he is leading the Wendigo and mm. making more Wendigo and now sending the Wendigo in to attack the human population as we see in chapter 19 down the road, mm. but that he deliberately as talked about all the way back when they were thinking about like, why would someone target the vice president of the RSN? Mm. That he, has a
0: knowledge of how the infrastructure works, doesn't it? yeah, yeah.
1: exactly. it's it's like mm. it, it, he was he wasn't just attacking humanity in general. He was mm. literally sending a message to the mm. powers that be by yeah. taking out someone their society says is important. And so he says, "Look now at my power that I can remove even the most powerful among you." Well, that's it.
0: that is probably where the like argument for the aristocratic quality mm. of uh, Seth comes from is that even if like he's not necessarily positioned in the way that Dracula is kind of this analogy of someone feeding off of and benefiting from the like structures as they mm. currently exist, even though Seth appears to be dismantling those structures, he is nevertheless, kind of doing so in a way that you could argue it is within his power and right as this person in a high status, he is exercising his power to dismantle this, to determine what the course of people will be.
1: He isn't just attacking the foundations of human society with his actions, he is ostensibly replacing it with Mm. the purity of the Wendigo as Mm. he talks now, he talks about now, and he's going to talk more about it later, but... Obviously, there are things we can't say yet. and the end of the book, will likely have more about Seth and what one could extrapolate his motives are. He is going to go on to be one of the longest-running antagonists in New Century, and I don't feel like that's a spoiler, since you've already seen that he and Brioth, the manticore, heal like Wolverine does. But each new outing will also reveal layers to what he is as centered around the themes of the book in question, which means that in this book, we have to wait until he comes into contact with the Arlington's. You should actually go on to say, share some of some more of the stuff that you wrote about uh, mm. the Dracula metaphor, sure. because I found it intriguing. Yeah.
0: And, and maybe this has been something that has been on my mind and Alex's mind, because uh, like on the Discord, we've been discussing and sharing sort of all reminiscing about the Castlevania series and oh, how, like, you know, yeah. Am I saying I would love a sort of sprite work style, uh, like new century game where you oh, like go through, and each character has different abilities, and there's a tall uh, Seth at the end, and he actually says, "What is a man?" Um,
1: you know, I'm I'm not saying I'm not. I'm not. I, uh, I don't uh, think that Seth is prepared for Simon Belmont or the Belmont family, <laughs> but 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 uh, but but do go on, sir. Uh,
0: i would i would i would say that if alex is considering doing a sort of dracula or just a vampire story that seth does fit the bill quite nicely he is the closest to that archetype that we've seen in new century so far he's magnetic he's dominating enthralling and symbolic of hidden natures in humanity that he will help you to as i said earlier unclothe and bring out into the moonlight he seems to be able to get inside your head, an effect that is really well-emphasized when he seems to address some of Annie's narration that should represent an internal dialogue. So when Seth softly but firmly says, No escape. Just following on from what Annie had just considered a second ago, but not necessarily voiced, that feels like a he's he's quite literally inside your head, which is a level of intimacy that is disarming and it is in effect a violation. Alex has shared in the past that the voice and performance that he was going for uh, with Seth was inspired by Benedict Cumberbatch, particularly his take on Khan in Into Darkness. And you can hear that same calculated assurance and intimidating primal quality in Seth's voice, and it makes him a frightening person to share a room with.
2: Why would a Starfleet admiral ask a 300-year-old frozen man for help?
1: Because I am better.
2: At what? Everything.
0: Alexander Marcus needed to respond to an uncivilised threat in a civilised time, and for that... He needed a warrior's mind, my mind, to design weapons and warships.
1: You are suggesting the Admiral violated every regulation he vowed to uphold simply because he wanted to exploit your intellect. I wanted to exploit my savagery.
0: Intellect alone is useless in a fight, Mr. Spock. You, you can't even break a rule. How would you be expected to break bone? It's that quality that when you watch that film, when uh, Benedict Cumberbatch's Khan is Imprisoned, and they're talking with him. I think the film itself even says, mm. Why do I get the feeling that, like, he's the only one who wants to be here? Or mm. maybe I'm maybe I'm forgetting that and thinking of like a line about Loki and the Avengers, but like it's sort of I, th- I think that
1: was Loki, yes, yeah. but but th- that idea mm. of the bad guy being in prison and yet still being in control. Is mm. one that has been visited a number of times in recent movies. Mm. Joker in the Dark Knight. I don't even Hannibal remember what the Lecter. name. Yeah. Or the bad guy in uh, Skyfall, the Bond movie. I don't even remember his name. Um, that, you, uh, that that should tell you how much I, I care about James Bond, but still.
0: Excellent performance, uh, uh, slash, uh, excellent actor. I just. Mm-hmm. Javier Bardem is the actor. Mm. And. I think Silver is the name of the character.
1: I, and yeah. I honestly, I should, I should finally watch Into Darkness because I, I honestly never watched all that much of the Kelvin series just because parts of the first movie turned me off a little bit. Mm-hmm. I never really liked Kirk all that much. And so therefore, Chris Pine playing up some of the aspects of Kirk that I just don't particularly like. Is what mm. made me go. I don't really care about seeing anything anymore about that. But I've come around a little bit on Pine as an actor, mm. so I feel like I need mm. to give it another try. Uh, I, I
0: would say that if the the sort of Kirkisms, the aspects of Kirk that basically went into uh, Zap Brannigan, uh like if that's the <laughs> stuff that you're like, uh, I, I could do with less of that. Mm-hmm. I would say that definitely softens and not necessarily entirely goes away but it does dissipate as you go through the second one and the third one beyond i really like beyond especially because near the beginning of that i really should revisit it but uh he discusses this thing about in the story for him he talks about i'm now older than my father ever was Mm -hmm. and just there's a lot of self-reflection and self-awareness there which I do appreciate that I think makes a series really uh, worth going into and Into Darkness has its detractors it has its uh, people who like will say it it has merits Mm -hmm. and I depending on the time of day will vary on it but Mm -hmm. what I can guarantee is that you will get a ...compelling performance by, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch because you so rarely get a performance from him where he isn't.
1: I, also, I want to see more John Cho. This isn't a movie review podcast, but if you have never seen the movie Searching, that is an amazing movie that John Cho shines in. Considering he has to act the fuck out of situations where the cinematography is limited, due to the constraints of the fact that the movie has to exist entirely, in the medium of interactions through a computer
0: oh god he's brilliant
1: his his characterization of sulu in the first one was one of the things that i really enjoyed
0: so i'm sorry i just had a moment of like remembering a man crush and it's just sort of like uh (laughs) just let me just sit with that
1: Mm -hmm. yeah
0: married spud i'm a married spud i'm a married spud um (laughs) it's
1: it's all right um (laughs) Get, getting back to the subject at hand when we were talking a little bit about the idea of Seth's relationship to the Wendigo
2: mm.
1: also some of what you were just talking about a moment ago with how he's able to get into people's heads mm. it's left a little bit unclear as to whether he's just really good at reading body language because I think that's, animals, well see that's here. here's the thing it plays up his animal characteristics and animals tend to be they're better at reading body language obviously mm. because that this is how they survive this is dogs in particular are very sensitive to the body language of their owners and mm. of humans in general because humans can be capable of great good and great evil unfortunately um
0: and if you're listening to this in the room you're a very good boy yes you are yes you are
1: <laughs> but given how accurately seth responds to some of annie's thoughts and the fact that he says he's able to instruct the wendigo without indicating like how does he communicate with them does is there an actual language yes he does speak in an unfamiliar language to breoth but people talk to animals all the time that don't understand language we never see him speaking this language again to breoth or the Wendigo. Indeed, his interaction with the wendigos that George and Louise become devolves into growls. And while growling is a vocalization that means something to, say, wolves, it's not really a complex language. Animals use different kinds of vocalizations to suggest intent, rather than complex ideas. Or is he Mm -hmm. able to instruct them via body language like wolf packs do or something like that you know there's a little bit of that stuff going on with um, dawn of the the planet of the apes in Mm. terms of body language and rituals and everything like that Mm. but for all we know he could very well be telepathic who knows
0: he does say when he's talking with annie that like don't bother lying i can read you like a book and, and and specifically addresses like body language and just, like, possibly even pheromones and stuff. So, like, I think that that is probably what is going on, is that, like, she doesn't have to say anything, and Mm. he can intuit, like, not necessarily the specific words in her head, but what her current state of mind is, is something he can probably read.
1: Well, we should definitely
0: talk about it more when we... Discuss Seth again.
1: When we discuss Seth again, which is not going to be all that far Mm. off.
0: I will... Say this, and maybe this is a thought to bring up later when we mm-hmm. uh, bring up Seth again. But here's a thought considering the sort of positioning of Arlington as a book that came out, I think, just after Tiger's Eye, and we are looking at it and Carter's mm. Handbook just after Tiger's Eye, is what we are seeing here with Seth a next but darker step or iteration of what we saw? Crow becoming capable of, of this just being able to generate non-verbal communication, being able to communicate and intuit beyond words, is Seth this sort of dark inversion of what Crow has Hmm. been able to develop this ability for, for positives. We talked so much about why that is positioned in a positive way. Is this kind of a darker version of that?
1: I definitely think it's worth more discussion. Maybe not yes. now, only because we have a full plate in ahead of us, but yep. <laughs> the idea that communication has been used in the past to strengthen bonds, to build community, mm. to solve problems. Mm. And Seth is able to weaponize his superior ability to read people against them yeah there's definitely something going on there yeah thematically. i i
0: think we can uh bring this uh, conversation of seth to a close by just simply saying the fact that we really want to talk more about him and it feels <laughs> like we're cutting the conversation short is an indication of how good a first like introduction he has is he yeah. essentially comes onto the scene and says hello i'm the sexy voiced big bad of the series be seeing you like just
1: honestly i think we should put a pin and say that when we close out our discussion of arlington there is going to be an entire section that is dedicated to seth once we have the complete picture that this book provides us with much like we did with hacker right? yeah well, is a little bit different, obviously. Oh yeah. No, uh, like, but, they but, not, yeah. like
0: they are not they're not one and the same. Anyway, <laughs> let's let's stop talking about New Century. We've got New Century to talk about.
1: <laughs> well, okay, so Did I just we... summarize
0: our entire podcast? <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh crap. <laughs> Sorry. You're making me laugh so hard I almost fell well, fell back in my chair. I don't know if I'm gonna fall over. This is pretty well that balanced.
0: Is... That is a testament to how uh, good this is, how well this is all going.
1: Yeah. Uh, also, I've got plenty of caffeine going through my veins at this point. So now I'm now I'm coming at this with your level of energy, sir.
0: <laughs> well, this is where I reveal that while you were coming at this levels of caffeine, I had been caffeinating myself.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Great. Now it's a... Uh, This ain't a sin, it's a goddamn arms arms race. race. (laughs) Well, that's not quite the end of the Seth conversation, but I'm going to leave the last bit of it till next time. Since at the very least, that last digression brought us to a place of high spirits. It's also highly amusing in retrospect that Toby threw in a Castlevania reference at the end there. Something he knew that I did not is that there was going to be a Castlevania show on School of Everything Else right around the same time. As it turns out, this part one came out exactly the same week as the release of said show. But I sadly cannot joke about it being a stealth crossover with Through the Wind Door, since Toby was not a guest on that show. I'm also not going to poach Castlevania music for our outro, since Alex already uses all the relevant musical themes far better than I ever could. But as someone that knows only a little bit about the Castlevania games, I highly recommend listening, as they dive deep into its history and bring in to guest one of my favorites among our Discord crew, one Alexa Vargas, a.k.a. Pluto Burns. To close us out, given this is the beginning of September of 2021, And we've been through the seven years that the song talks about. It's tempting to use Wake Me Up When September Ends as our outro. It's certainly one of the best songs Green Day ever did. But I'm once more reminded that this podcast is an opportunity to share songs that are both personal to me and songs people might not have heard of. So instead, I'm going to use a song that makes me think about Annie's experience both in the time leading up to this moment in Chapter 17 and what might have been going through her mind faced with Seth's offer. We're not going to be talking about our opinions at that moment for a while. So until next time, this is Sarah McLaughlin with Black and White.